SOS is sharing our Savior. Acts chapter 5 verse 42 says, Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. At a recent commencement exercise, a student who is a professing Christian gave one of the addresses. When I saw his name on the program, I thought to myself, what a marvelous opportunity to speak to hundreds and yes, even thousands of people who are gathered here. Now it was a secular school, to be sure. But I was certain that this student would say something about God, or about biblical values at least, or the Christian worldview. But sadly, the speech was pure humanism. It would have been applauded at any New Age meeting. Or actually any convention of atheists would have stood up and cheered and said, What a wonderful speech that was. Now whether the student was intimidated by the circumstances, or is oblivious of the doctrinal heresy in his speech, or is himself a deceived proponent of error, which he spoke, I really don't know. But I know this, that it was a missed opportunity. But that student is not alone. All of us have, from time to time, failed to confess what we know is true and to stand up for what we believe. We, too, have compromised. We, perhaps, have been intimidated we have been challenged to keep our religion private and to ourselves. But we, as the people of God, are not called to live that way. We are called to make Jesus Christ the issue in our world. The whole movement of our culture is in the opposite direction. To keep your beliefs to yourself... But the Bible says that as those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who believe that God reigns in his world, we are to make our faith an issue. Now we're to do that in a way that will be appreciated, or at least in a way that will be acceptable. We're not to make it an issue in a negative sense. We're not to make ourselves troublesome and irritating. But we are, in the most positive way, God enables us to make our faith an issue in our world. We are to share our Savior. Jesus Christ is the only solution, really, to what is ailing the world. From America to the Balkans, that is true. I'll tell you what is the heart of the problems in the United States of America today. It's not economics. It is true that we are in an economic mess. And some people say there's no way out but collapse. It is true we are in an economic mess. We are in a political mess. Boy, are we in a political mess. But the problems in America are neither economic nor political. 
The problems in America are moral and spiritual. We could get out of our economic problems in this country if everyone in America were tomorrow to live morally. If everyone were to be honest, stop cheating, stop defrauding, it would not take very long for us to get out of our economic mess without any kind of a tax increase. I am not running for office. <laughs> the problems in the Balkans? The United Nations doesn't have a solution for it. Europe doesn't have a solution for it. Certainly our nation doesn't, being on the other side of the ocean. The deep-seated hatred that exists among the various cultures in the Balkans can only be solved by Jesus Christ. A spiritual awakening. You can go to every problem that's in the world, from Sri Lanka to Somalia, from the White House to the Kremlin, and Jesus Christ is the answer. And you know something interesting? The people in Russia are a lot closer today to understanding that truth than the people in the United States of America. Because the public schools in Russia are begging for people to come and to teach them morality in their schools. And I'm talking about biblical morality. I'm talking about teaching the Bible teaching the truths of Christianity in the public schools, they realize that is the only way out of their problems. The United States is heading in exactly the opposite direction. What an exciting day to be alive as a Christian and to have the opportunity of sharing Jesus Christ. When people all around the world are being confronted with the helplessness, the hopelessness of the answers they've tried to find on their own. Jesus Christ is the only Savior for what is destroying lives, for what is destroying economies, for what is destroying cultures. He is the only Savior from sin. Sharing our Savior is the calling of every Christian. The book of Acts begins with its theme statement when it says, And you shall be witnesses to me. That is the theme of the book of Acts in the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, beginning in Jerusalem and then going to the uttermost parts of the earth. In the book of Acts, we learn several lessons about sharing our Savior. These are lessons that are important for us today. They basically arise out of Acts 5.42 and its context. Lesson number one is this. Sharing our Savior involves a lifetime of mission. That is our mission, to share the Savior. You notice these early believers, it says, day after day, never stopped talking about Him. They realized that that's what Jesus Christ had called them to do. It is true of us today. Sharing our Savior involves a lifetime of mission. Whether it was in the temple courts, or the synagogues, the marketplaces, the palaces, the prisons, wherever they were, whatever the opportunities, they took advantage of those opportunities. Sometimes it was in the midst of intimidation. They were threatened. You are no longer to speak this name. 
the same kind of intimidation that is being used today in the public places of America. You may not speak his name. The early Christians knew the proper response to that. And they said, whether it's right to obey you or God, you be the judge. We can't help but speak this name. And we ought not to be intimidated to silence either by those today who, like those people opposing Christianity and Acts, said, don't talk anymore about Jesus. We will talk about Jesus. He is the issue. He is the solution to the world's problems. And we are called to a lifetime of mission sharing our Savior. Sometimes it was in the marketplace of ideas where this happened. I think immediately, of course, of Paul going to Athens and there being invited to go to the place where the intellectuals met on Mars Hill. It was there that they shared ideas They talked different philosophies. They didn't accomplish a whole lot, but they talked through all these different philosophies and enjoyed that exercise. And when they heard Paul talking about what he was talking about, they said, come on up here and and share with us. And so he went to the marketplace of ideas. Roughly, that would uh, today be the equivalent of universities. The place of education, higher education in particular. They said, come and tell us what you want to say. And so Paul stood before them, and he proclaimed Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, appointed by God as the judge of all men. Now, he took a while to get to that point. We'll see in a moment. There's a reason why. But that's where he ended up. In the marketplace of ideas, they were unafraid to share the Savior. We ought to be the same way. And not be intimidated, not be afraid, not be cowardly about sharing the Savior. Wherever ideas are bantered about. Another wonderful place to do that is uh, in the letters to the editor of the newspaper. Some of you have begun writing to the editors of our newspapers. I enjoy reading your letters, the ones that make it in. And I appreciate how you phrase things and how you put it in a winsome, winning way. And how sometimes you don't even mention religion, but you get Christian values out there in the marketplace of ideas. There are many avenues by which we can share the Savior where people are talking about ideas. We ought to be using every one of them. Then in the milieu of persecution. The early church was persecuted, and one of its chief persecutors was Saul. A couple of later's chapter here in Acts, we see that he was putting Christians in prison, and he was bringing them to the courts, and and they were being sentenced to death. As a result of that, the Christians who were in the environs of Jerusalem were scattered. It says, wherever they went, they preached the word. Look in chapter 8 and verse 4, just at that verse. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. You see, they, they grasped this idea that I'm talking about. That sharing the Savior is not just something you do when you go out calling. It's not something you do merely when you invite someone to come to church. It's something you do every day. You just keep looking for the opportunities that God presents 
in every context you have, to see it as your mission in life. You may have a vocation, you may have hobbies and sports you like to get involved in. You may do a lot of things, but understand that as a child of God, your mission is to share the Savior. The second lesson that I see is that sharing our Savior utilizes a diversity of methods. Now notice in this verse that we're looking at this morning. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming. Two different verbs. Teaching seems to be rather obvious. It means to lay out the facts to someone as a teacher to students. Proclaiming means to make an announcement. It's not exactly the same as teaching. It means to stand up in public and make an announcement like a herald. So you see a couple of different methods here. There's the teaching method, and then there's just the public announcement, such as in the marketplace. But listen to some of the verbs that are used in the first part of the book of Acts in telling about how the church went about its mission of sharing the Savior. They taught and proclaimed, but they also warned they pleaded, they testified, they evangelized, they preached, they told the message, they urged, they preached the good news, they reasoned, they explained, they proved, they persuaded, they vigorously refuted. All of those are different verbs describing how the church went about its mission. Sharing the Savior involves a diversity of methods. We ought to use whatever appropriate means we can to share the Savior. And to be creative in doing that. There were thousands of, of uh, believers yesterday who marched in Minneapolis. Now that may not be the way everybody would do it, but there were thousands of people who did it that way. And... Uh, they exalted Jesus Christ as Lord. That's one way. But what about a backyard Bible club for boys and girls? That's another method. To invite the neighborhood children in to be taught Bible stories. What about uh, the outdoors worship service? Or what about a backyard barbecue? inviting your neighbors in. Or using a special season of the year to invite your neighbors to come together at your home to, to think about the meaning of Easter or of Christmas. What about the sermons from science, this marvelous opportunity we have in August to invite people to come and to have them see the laws of science demonstrated here and the gospel arising right out of the, the laws of science called Sermons from Science. It's a marvelous evangelistic opportunity in August for all of us in our church. We need to use all of the diverse methods that God allows us to, that are within our means, that we might share the Savior. Whatever method we use, it needs to be with the same compassion and conviction which these early believers had as they shared the Savior. The third lesson that I see is that sharing our Savior 
requires contextualization of the message. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, you know what context means. <clears throat> when we talk about the contextualization of the message, we're saying that this message needs to be put into the context of the hearers so that they can understand what we're trying to say to them. Now we see it here in this verse where it says that they proclaimed the good news, there's the message, that Jesus is the Christ. What does the word Christ mean? Can someone tell me? What's another word for it? Well, Savior is a synonym, but it, Messiah, Messiah, Christ is Messiah. Christ is the Greek, Messiah is the Hebrew term. Chosen one, that's an English transliteration. Now tell me this, what group in the world would understand what Christ means? Jews, exactly. You could not preach Christ to the average Gentile and have him understand it. That was not a term that, that connected with him. He may have recognized it as something Jewish, but he, it, it didn't come down into his life. It wasn't a part of his world. And so we see the church preaching the good news in the context of the Jews first. And as they did that, they proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. Now to the Jew, that term had all kinds of colorful meanings to it. They recognized it coming right out of the Old Testament as being the chosen one of God, as being the one who would come to redeem and rescue Israel. Now when the believers went to Samaria, what do you think they talked about? Do you know who the Samaritans were? The Samaritans were despised people, yes. <clears throat> they were people who were disliked intensely by the Jews, although they were half Jewish. The Samaritans of Jesus' day were the descendants of Jews who had been carted off to Assyria 700 years before and who had intermarried with Assyrians. Thus they were called the half-breeds. They were hated. But the Samaritans, although they were different than the Jews, brought a lot of Jewish ideas into the religion they created. They did not look down to Jerusalem, obviously, as their, the headquarters of their religion. They had their own headquarters in Samaria. And they had some other ideas that uh, were extraneous, but at the heart of it were some of the Old Testament ideas, including the Christ, that connected with them too. <clears throat> if you go to John chapter 4, it's very interesting to see that that's who the woman at the well thought Jesus was. Are you then the Christ? And so when the church went to Samaria and preached the gospel, we see in chapter 8 and verse 5 that Philip proclaimed the Christ there. Why? Because it connected that same message. 
It was a context they would understand. Well, let's go over to chapter 10 now and look at uh, kind of a different type person, a different culture, different context. Let's look at the God-fearing Gentile. Now, here is a Gentile who has not yet converted to the Jewish religion, but he's intrigued by it. He's listening to it. He believes it, basically. But he's not a convert to Judaism. He's a God-fearing Gentile. Well, let's look in chapter 10, verse 34. Peter began to speak. Now, he is speaking to Cornelius, who is a God-fearing Gentile. I now realize how true it is, he says, that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message of God, the message God sent to the people of Israel. Now, he did. He was a God-fearing Gentile. He says, now, Cornelius, you're not a Jew, but you know the message. Telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And he goes on, he picks up on basically the same theme to this God-fearing Gentile. Helping him to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the one who fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. Now if you turn over to Acts chapter 17, which we'll do just briefly, you'll see years later the Apostle Paul going to a different crowd. Here he is talking to people who are raw pagans. They're intellectual, but they worship all kinds of gods. It says in verse 16 of Acts 17, While Paul was waiting for his group in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. Where did he reason with them? In the synagogue. That was the connecting place. And as well, in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Another context. Well, he goes on to tell us who some of those people were, and they asked him to come and to talk about his message. And so in verse 22... Paul stands up in the Areopagus, <clears throat> Mars Hill, and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Do you see what he's doing here? He has not mentioned Jesus Christ. He's not mentioned the Old Testament. He's not mentioned God. He is connected with these pagans on a different level. He says, I see that you're very religious, and they were. People say that there were more altars and more gods in Athens than there were people, and there were hundreds of thousands of them. And he says, as I was looking at some of your altars, I noticed one with this inscription to the unknown God. Now the superstition of these pagans was that they had to worship all the gods. If they missed one, they would be in lots of trouble from that God. 
And so they put up this idol, it said, to the unknown God to cover all the bases. And that's the idol, that's the altar, rather, that Paul saw. And he said, now you're worshiping the unknown God. I want to tell you about it. And then he begins to preach about the God of creation. He goes all the way back and picks up the story of how God is the creator and gives to all life and breath. And notice that it's not until almost the end of his message that he brings up the name of Jesus. He says, we're all God's offspring, in verse 29. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Who does this unknown God? He says, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man whom he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, it's at this point he's really interrupted. The message does end because uh, the resurrection of the dead was not well received by these intellectuals. But my point is that Paul preaches to them the truth about God in the context of where they were. Now, ladies and gentlemen... This third lesson has never been more important for you and for me than it is today. Past generations have been able to witness fairly casually and easily in the United States because our whole culture was formed around Christian values and ideas. That is different today. We can no longer assume that people know who God is. I think of the person who just a few months ago made the comment to someone in our church, well, I've heard about Easter, but I I don't even know who Jesus is. There are many people out there today who don't have a clue as to who God is, other than the higher power That's why I think that the method that we are using and developing in our church called the chronological Bible study is such a key method in our culture. Because what it does, it starts back with the book of Genesis and it explains who God is. And then it works its way through the Old Testament, talking about how God has revealed himself. And it actually concludes then with the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. It really patterns itself after Acts chapter 17 in a lot of ways. If you want to have a Bible study in your neighborhood, that is probably a tool you ought to consider. A chronological Bible study that starts at the beginning and then just unfolds the truth of the gospel. We are to share our Savior, but to do that, we have to put the good news in the context of what people can understand that we're talking to. You can't go to your neighbor and just assume he's going to understand the four spiritual laws. When it says God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life, because they don't know who God is.
That's an important lesson for us to learn. We are called to a mission, a lifetime mission to share our Savior, and it requires contextualization of the message. Well, finally, let me just say that sharing our Savior results in a contrast of movements. We see that as the early church did this, their numbers grew. We're here in Acts chapter 5. Just turn back to verse 14, for example. It says, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. You can see that kind of phrase throughout the early part of Acts. God added to the number. The number of the disciples was multiplied. There was growth. It was true also in the ministry of Paul. Chapter 16, for example, and verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. These are the churches that Paul had planted. And they were every day growing, spiritually and numerically. We need to get rid of the idea that somehow has developed in the 20th century American mindset that a church can be a healthy church and not grow numerically. Now, there are some exceptions to that, I suppose. When the church is under persecution, there might be reason for it not to outwardly grow numerically. Although that isn't what happened, is it, in China. There may be a rural place where there are limited numbers of people and a, a church can grow to a certain point and then it's struggle from then on to grow anymore because of just the, the numerical odds are against them. But let me tell you, in a metropolitan area, there's no excuse. The idea that a church can grow spiritually without growing numerically is a false idea. It's unbiblical. But we've accepted it just as being, well, of course that's true. It's not true. Now, it may grow by 1% or it may grow by 100%, but it's going to grow. Because people are going to come to Christ if the church is healthy spiritually. Now, it can be a happy, content, and complacent church and deader than a doornail. It's not going to grow. But that's not a healthy church, is it? A healthy church must grow numerically as well as spiritually. So that's, that's one movement. As we are sharing our Savior, there's going to be growth. It has to happen. And we have to provide for it. On the other hand, there's a movement the other way of resistance. And you see it beginning to build up in Acts from the early chapters. People who are opposed to this, they don't like it. It's stepping on their territory. Their enemies mobilized. And let me tell you, when a person, when a church is serious about sharing the Savior... And it's using methods that are effective in the context of the culture where it is. You can count on it. There will be opposition that will rise up. Now remember, the opposition is not really flesh and blood, is it? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual forces in the realms of darkness. It's demonic opposition that uses flesh and blood. But believe me, it happens. To some degree, it was even evidenced yesterday in the march for Jesus, where there was opposition 
Resistance is inevitable. That ought not to stop us. It must not stop us. We must continue to be the people of God. Why? Because people need the Lord. Because people need Jesus. Because he is the solution to their problems. That is not a simplistic statement. It's the truth. Jesus Christ is the solution. He is the answer. And we are the ones called by God to that privilege of sharing him. I liked what we sang just before the message when we said, Blessed to be a blessing. That's us. Privileged to care. Challenged by the need apparent everywhere. Where mankind is wanting, fill the vacant place. Be the means through which the Lord reveals His grace. That's our calling. Whenever I go into uh, one of our department stores and pass by the fragrances... I like to go over where the men's fragrances are and see the samples that are out. Now, you men do this too, so don't stare at me like I'm some oddity. I like to go over there and I pick out one and put a little bit on my hand and, you know, like I'm going to buy it. Just want to see what it's like. And then when they're not looking, I go like this. (laughs) And then I like to go find my wife and give her a hug. And say, ooh, you smell good. I guess it's a contrast to what she's used to. I don't know. (laughs) But there's that fragrance. On the other hand, have you ever gone into a restaurant and the no smoking section was filled and you couldn't wait and so you had to get in the smoking section to eat? And they say, well, there's nobody smoking there. You can go ahead and sit down. As soon as you do, they pull them out, you know. And you leave there and you just reek with the smoke and you walk home and your husband or your wife says where have you been have you ever noticed you can just smell it hangs on you on your clothes it shows where we've been oh that our lives as we walk among people that our lives would be fragrant with the sweetness of Jesus that the aroma of his life and his love his compassion his caring for people would be so strong in our lives that people, when they meet us, would say, boy, there's something awfully fragrant, awfully sweet about that person. We are called to share the Savior. That's our lifetime mission. What a privilege. What a calling. Let's do it. Because people need Jesus. Let's pray. I want to call you to this step of obedience today. We'll Will you say in your heart, Lord, I will be obedient to share you with others this week. I will look for the opportunities. I want you to be the fragrance in my life. I want you to be the sweet aroma of God, of the good news. And Lord, I will look for the opportunities to open my mouth and to put the gospel, the good news, in the context of that person that's listening to me so that they can understand it. 
Now, you may have been living this way for the last week or year or 50 years. Or you may just today be saying for the first time, I really want to live that way as a child of God. But if that is your prayer, whichever situation may be yours, you're saying, Lord, I want my life to be a fragrance of Jesus to others. Would you just lift your hand and put it down? Just lift it so he can see it. As a testimony to God, God, this is what I want my life to be. Amen. Lord, this week, may the aroma of Jesus be upon us, the sweetness of God. And may there be something about our lives that will attract others to him. And Lord, fill us with courage. Fill us with wisdom that we might share the Savior with others. Amen.